From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. I'm Mick Garris, and it's time for the fun size postmortem edition of AMA, where you can ask me anything. And you'll ask me anything your little heart desires by going to Joe Russo. Producer Joe, how are you today? I am well, Mick, and we have tons of questions. Uh, so let's get you on the slab and, and get going. Let's get to business. All right. Bryant wants to know. During the Charles Andy Charles and Andy chase scene in Sleepwalkers, is there a story behind the bit where the squirrel almost runs into the road in front of the car, but decides not to? That was luck. Not everybody notices that, but there in that outrageous car chase scene, um, the cars rip by on the road, and if you watch closely. Before they rip by, a little squirrel starts to run across the road and the cars are coming and it turns around and goes in the other way. And that was <laughs> entirely accidental. Um, that whole sequence, the action sequence, we, we were uh, going to have Mickey Moore do the second unit direction on Sleepwalkers. He had done Raiders of the Lost Ark and so many great uh, second unit sequences in giant movies. But Mickey Moore had a heart attack right before he was going to uh, shoot our scenes. So his DP, Burt Dunk, took over, but I basically went in myself and I'm not a second unit director and, and, uh, you know, had not done a whole lot of action scenes, chase scenes, but ended up shooting that stuff all, all on first unit. And so it was, it was a real challenge doing that, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm so glad somebody noticed the squirrel in the theater. It's a little easier than when you're watching it at home, but that sure. heroic squirrel shall live in infamy. <laughs> so, so that's what they say about happy accidents. Um, that's right. And that's a good one. Glenn asks Mick, uh, as you were part of their schedule, did you hold on to your old Z channel magazines? Um, you know, I did They're They're around somewhere, but that's from remember 1979 to 1981. Right. <laughs> and so, uh, they're somewhere entombed in some box of, 
of periodicals I've got. But yeah, I mean, FX Feeney did most of the writing for the magazine and I wrote for the magazine. And and I'm sure there are collectors uh, in the LA area who have access to a bunch of them. Mine would take some excavating to uncover. <laughs> Not readily available. Uh, <clears throat> speaking of, of your interview days, uh, yeah. Carlos writes... I would love to hear more about your experience interviewing music legends like Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin. Well, you know, I was 15, 16 years old at the time, something like that. And uh, it was a little easier to get access if you were actually writing for a publication. And I was writing for the San Diego Door, um, the magazine or the newspaper, underground newspaper that Cameron Crowe was writing for. Um, and that's the basis of his movie, Almost Famous. So we were doing that at the same time. Uh, the most memorable, Hendrix was a little standoffish. We didn't talk a lot, just a couple of questions. Um, and he was not very engaged. Janice, on the other hand, was quite drunk and crying and talking about, you know, I ain't got no man, man. My band is my man, man. And, and in tears. And, you know, it was really one of the most memorable interviews and most personal and, and uncensored conversations I've ever had, even though it did not last a long time. You know, I'm one-on-one -on -one with this sad, crying superstar at the peak of her career. Um, yeah. And afterwards, you know, I'm watching from backstage on the side of the stage, just watching her sing. And my my brother was out in front, my younger brother, Craig. And he said, afterwards, why was Janice singing to you? And it was like, wait, I thought that was my imagination. Do you think so, too? <laughs> it was just one of those. I don't know if it was true or not, but it sure was nice to, to feel that way. But it was really heartrending and and sad and sweet all at the same time. And uh, a day I'll never forget. I, I, it's, it's, it's incredible. And I, I just think it's so, so cool that you and Cameron Crowe basically lived that movie, which is, which is awesome. Uh, so much. So it's, yeah, it's one of my, it's one of my favorite movies. I just, I just think it's such a wonderful picture. It um, really captures it. So staying on the, uh, you know, kind of your, your early interview days and in publicity, uh, Thomas wants to know, when you worked at Avco Embassy, did you work on any of their non-horror titles? And will this period of your career be covered in your upcoming biography at all? I was there specifically to work on the genre titles, and they had several, starting with The Fog, with The Howling, with Escape from New York, um, there were and Scanners. Those were all movies I was brought in because... I knew the fan base and could reach that fan base better than the more stodgy um, corporate world that the studios were used to. Uh, so I did not work on other things like the Black Marble and other movies they were releasing at the time. I was aware of them and knew about them and got to meet people like Joseph Wamba who were involved in those movies. Um, but yes, it will be covered in, uh, in my biography that is uh, being finished up now by Abby Bernstein, and it will be out um, in October, I believe, called <laughs> Master of Horror, which is a title, <laughs> a title I would quibble with, but uh, it's not up to me. Yeah. 
I love the title. I think it's great. <laughs> uh, okay. Barker Eater wants to know, if you could time travel and watch any director ever make their movie, who would it be and what film? Well, probably. Wouldn't it have to be Hitchcock and Psycho? I mean, oh, yeah. that, uh, you know, because I was fortunate enough to 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 work under the shadow of Hitchcock on Psycho 4, um, to be able to watch him at work and understand how he conceived and communicated with his cast and crew, that would be the dream experience. I mean, sure, I would love to go back and watch George Romero do Night of the Living Dead. Or, uh, but, you know, I was lucky enough to get to know George and, and Toby and, and so many of the other people who made classic horror films. And I saw Hitchcock in person on the Universal lot a couple of times, but I, I never got to see him work. And that would be, uh, that would be the ultimate dream for any filmmaker, I think. You know, I, I was thinking about Hitchcock being a good answer to that question, but I also know that he did so much of his work in pre-production, you know? It's true. Um, you know, just one of the things I learned working on Amazing Stories was you don't learn that much watching a director on the set because so much of the work has been done in pre-production. And Hitchcock, mm -hmm. even more than anybody else, famously, he did not give a lot of direction uh, on set and the like, but still to watch him work, even in pre-production yeah. would, would be the dream answer. But you're absolutely right. He was a guy who was not very outward with his, his work and techniques on the set. That was mostly planned well before. And in fact, he didn't even enjoy the shooting process, according to the biographies I've read and, and things he's said, quotes from him. He really liked the process of planning and was bored by the actual shooting. Yeah, no, I, I, I that's, that was what I was thinking. But boy, some of his movies, though, uh, would have been nice to go, go on set for, especially the ones that are set against the French Riviera and such. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, that. but that wouldn't be why I'd want to be there. No, I, I know. I know. Uh, Sodium writes, I'm an aspiring filmmaker living in Colorado, and I was wondering where you got your G&E equipment when you were shooting the Shining miniseries back in the 90s. Do you, do you know? Well, the shooting equipment would usually yeah. come uh, from rental houses in L.A. or, you know, shooting the stand in Salt Lake City, there was a lot of production. So there were things that were rentable. I mean, cameras and lights and things like that. Nothing that was um, extraordinary. You know, we we had our Steadicam and and uh, Hothead and all that was imported from L.A. And depending on where you're shooting, you know, in Vancouver, there's a very deep production base there, Toronto. Um, so uh, shooting on location is usually not limited. Now, we shot Bag of Bones in Nova Scotia um, and in Halifax. It is a production center, but you get most of your equipment from Toronto and from Montreal, where they are major production bases. Cool. No, yeah, I, I, it's, I think, I think now more than ever, uh, there are websites uh, like one called ShareGrid that allow more local um, equipment houses to get their 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 equipment in front of productions that are coming into town. So 
I, I think you're probably right that a lot of it probably came from LA and, and that that's changing, you know, it um, is. And the equipment's changing too. It's much more mobile. It's right. much less expensive. You know, you, 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 you're not stuck with Panavision. Now there are a lot of competitors and yep. the, the size of cameras and the lights that are required uh, for lighting um, are much more flexible and much more portable and, and universally available. I agree. T-Bird wants to know, do you like being a producer on projects like Masters of Horror and Nightmare Cinema? Um, obviously, we know you as, as a writer-director intimately, but, but you have done a lot of producing. What, 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 what do you get out of producing, Nick? Well, it's a very specific kind of producing I like. What I like is gathering talented people together and give them the freedom and protection to do their work the way they want to. And that's what the whole philosophy behind Masters of Horror was and with Nightmare Cinema and anything. You know, I normally only produce stuff that I direct except for something like that, where I'm able to allow people to do their best work unimpeded. So that's the part of producing I like. I don't raise money. I don't like dealing with funding. I don't like the business end of producing. I'm forced into it at times making business decisions and the like, but really creative producing and working with creative people. That's the part of producing I really enjoy. And I love that part. The business end, that's why there are real producers out there. There are, there are line producers, there are executive producers, there are people who deal with the business and financial and uh, you know, release. Logistical side. Yeah. Yeah. All the logistical stuff and all, all of the, uh, uh, dealing with, with, uh, release matters and things like that. Those, those are elements that I don't really want to be bothered with. I don't blame you. Uh, <laughs> Noble writes, it is said that writing is rewriting. Can you talk about your rewriting process? Who are the people you send your scripts to for constructive criticism? And are there specific things you're looking for within that criticism? Yeah, you know, when I'm writing on spec, I put everything into the first draft. And, you know, I just let my imagination go. There's no rules. I'm not trying to please anybody but myself. And so... Um, you know, Cynthia reads my stuff. I don't send it out to many people to read um, because often, other than people I really trust and are close friends and the like who are usually filmmakers, readers often look for what they're familiar with, even without realizing that's what they're doing. If you do something really different that doesn't follow the pattern, uh, the, the standard of what you see in movies and television, um, they're thrown off by it. They want things to be tied up in a way that they're familiar with. And studio executives think that way, and they write books about writing scripts following those rules. <laughs> and so I don't want people who think there are rules to writing a screenplay to be giving me suggestions how to do it when I'm working on spec. When So I rarely rewrite much other than going over and tightening things, reading it over and seeing things where sometimes I ramp up in the beginning, I take more pages 
to tell certain scenes and then it speeds up as I move through it and I feel more comfortable with the project once I know it and I'm comfortable with it. So I'll go back to the front and start tightening and just from, from page one, just go through and through and do I need this? Oh, this wasn't necessary. And oh, I was vamping until I came up with an idea here or something like that. But when I'm working for money, being a, a paid screenwriter, you have to take step by step by step. You first have to do a beat sheet. You have to do a treatment. You have to do all these things so we're all on the same page, literally, before you're actually writing the screenplay itself. And then there are a lot of cooks involved uh, in the process of, of rewriting. And you have to start taking into consideration the budget, what the producer feels, what the, the distribution uh, is going to, when is it coming out, and how is that going to impact on when <clears throat> creatively, what the movie is going to be, what the audience is, uh, the casting it often leads to rewriting to adapt better to a, a character, to an actor. So there are a lot of steps to take. <clears throat> but if I'm directing, then I'm writing for myself and it's a much easier task. But I actually like sometimes being in the position of screenwriting and not directing and then working with the director to achieve our mutual vision together. Yeah, no, I, I think I think uh, I think you really hit it. I mean, I think if if you, it's really just about having that close circle of people, I think for that that initial feedback, right? I mean, it's yeah. But even you know. even then, I try and trust myself that you know, Josh Olson re wrote that great column. No, I won't read your fucking screenplay. <laughs> and Google what she it. Said what she said uh, will be in, engraved on his tombstone. Yeah. <laughs> and anyone can Google it and, and you should read it and you'll see the reason why uh, people really are not open to reading screenplays. But I don't like to inflict that on people unless it's somebody who asks me if they can take a look at it. And, it, you know, because I want honesty, but I don't want unsolicited unsolicited input from someone to say oh i read your script you know this part i really like you know what i hated was this you know i didn't ask but well, i mean hopefully hopefully you find people who give notes that are better than that yes of course <laughs> but at this stage after having done it for so long i've learned to trust my choices mm -hmm. and they may not be commercial choices but they'll be the right creative choices then if and when i sell that spec script then we get into those discussions and it becomes real. You know, there's an awful lot of scripts I've written that have never been sold for various reasons. And I do it because I'm a writer and I love writing, not because I want to sell it and make a killing. Well, continuing on the writing front, Philip writes, question for Mick and Joe, have you ever written a lousy script and the bad mojo from it haunts you when starting a brand new script? Well, whether a script I've written is good or bad is not up for me to say, but I cannot imagine sitting down and writing a lousy script. I mean, I put my heart and soul into every screenplay that I write, and or I wouldn't write it because, mm -hmm. you know, it's most of what I write is on spec. Some of it sells, some of it doesn't, but my heart and soul is in it. And you know, I have seen scripts I've written turned into movies that I thought were less than wonderful. Uh, yes, me too. Uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah, but 
my heart and soul is in everything that I write and it's personal to me. And, you know, if something's going wrong, you see that happening and you change course. Mm -hmm. So um, Mm -hmm. I would like to think that the, that question has a premise that I find unacceptable. I think I think what they really mean. This is how I interpret it. It's not not that it's a lousy script, but maybe it's a script that, that didn't work for the marketplace or didn't get made for whatever reason. Uh, and and I and I think if I think of it from that perspective, um, sure you could look at it as something that could haunt you and, and create some kind of paralysis or writer's block. But I think you have to look at it the other way, which is if it didn't sell for some reason, why? And, and how can I learn from that in the next one? Right. I think that's, that's how I look at it. That's how I, so, so to me, it's, if I write something that didn't work for some reason, I, I take it as experience that I can then use to hopefully write better the next time. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. But I, you know, it's smart to write for the marketplace, but it's not smart to have that as your primary. Oh, sure. But, but you could write something that's incredibly personal and it still doesn't sell. Right. Um, and, 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 and you can still kind of, I think, internalize that and think about it and, and hopefully grow from it as a writer. I think every script that I've written, whether they were, they were good or bad or what have you, they've helped me grow as a writer, you know? Absolutely. And, sense. you know, the more writing you do, hopefully the better you get at it. Um, and it is important to grow as a writer. But it's also important, especially after having done it for many years, to realize it's not personal. You know, the script either works for a buyer or it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And there are a number of reasons for that. And some of those reasons could be that it's shitty. But it can't be assumed that a script is bad because it hasn't been made. Any screenwriter, great or not, has written scripts that have never sold. They literally have year-end lists for this, the blacklist, the bloodlist, yeah. where they list the best unproduced scripts. Uh, I mean, it's it's I mean, but a but a great unproduced script, if it's a great piece of writing, can help generate more writing assignments and 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 buzz around your next script. Um, so every script I think is a part of the journey. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Lost and Loaded wants to know if you could discuss your Tales from the Crypt episode Whirlpool how it was made, and how it relates in a world filled with deja vu Groundhog's Day-like storytelling. Well, there weren't a whole lot of Groundhog Day uh, movies at that time when this was made in uh, 93 or 94, I think. Yeah. I had just made The Stand. I had made Freddy's Nightmares for the producer Gil Adler before that, and they used a lot of the same crew, a lot of the same people were involved in Freddy's Nightmares, uh, who did um, Tales from the Crypt. So I was invited to do one of those. And I, it was contemporary. And the first thing I did was set it back in the 1950s. And I traded the lead roles. Um, there was a villainous editor and a schlubby um, cartoonist. And originally it was a female cartoonist and the editor was a male. So I made it, I cast two comedians in the lead role too. Rita Rudner, I made her the editor and I made Richard Lewis, the schlubby artist and cartoonist, uh, comic book writer. And yes, things happen over and over with little changes here and there. 
And it was tons and tons of fun. And we were able to make it more than just the boobs and blood show that Tales from the Crypt was well known as. You know, it would always be a punchline story with uh, a lot of nudity and gore. And this had a sense of humor and it was a little lighthearted. It had its share of nudity and gore right up front, but um, it was a really fun experience. There was not a lot of time and money, but it was really great to, I cast three actors in it um, and uh, three comedians in it uh, in the leading roles. And it was just so much fun to work with them and have them working on unfamiliar ground. And not all of them were into the horror genre, um, but it was, it was great. And I, and I really had a good time working with actors who were, were not familiar with the genre necessarily, or even in leading roles uh, rather than doing stand-up comedy. So I had a great time doing it. Did uh, had, I'm assuming you had seen Groundhog Day at that at that point, right? I guess so. Well, I I saw Groundhog Day when it came out, so right. if it came so, out yes. before Tales yes. from the Crypt, yeah. then yeah. I definitely had had seen it. But the script was there, and I was lucky enough to be able to tinker with it enough to turn it to set it in the 1950s and make it a period piece and all that. Make it your own, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. Yeah, no, I mean the that 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 subgenre of time loop movie continues to keep getting made. I literally just watched one last night uh, called Boss Level. Um, so uh, they 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 don't quit. <laughs> yeah, I, I, they're a loop themselves. Yeah, uh, there's a, another one called Lucky that I just saw on. Yes, I saw it too. Better. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So uh, we'll we'll. Thank you, Mick, for another uh, postmortem. You survived. We got through it Joe. all. Uh, Thank you, Joe, for bringing all of the questions to the fore. Uh, always. And if you guys want to send us more questions for upcoming postmortem AMAs, uh, you can send them to me directly at Joe Russo tweets on Twitter, Joe Russo Graham on Instagram, or you can send them to Mick at Mick Garris PM on Twitter and Instagram. And thank you, Joe, and thanks, everybody. And I look forward to having you ask me anything. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would let the world know about it by reviewing and rating it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have comments or questions for our Ask Mick Anything shows, send them to producer Joe at Joe Russo Tweets or to at Mick Garris PM on Instagram or Twitter or the Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. That's at Mick Garris PM on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to see my vintage and recent video interviews, making of documentaries, and audiobooks of some of my short stories, go to my website, mickgarrisinterviews.com. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. <laughs>